Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, public radio's new live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. This is week 6 of 14. Doesn't it feel like we're already on day 3,600 or something like this? Well, it is another week in the era of Trump. Scientists say they've discovered some 3.7 billion-year-old fossils that could be the earliest evidence of life on Earth. Oprah Winfrey is saying, hey, if Donald Trump can be president, why, why, why can't I? It's actually kind of a good point, right? And, uh, the Dow uh, hit uh, 21,000 today. This year's Oscars ceremony is going to be remembered for the most spectacular screw-up in the event's history. You know, this is the kind of stuff you have nightmares about, like showing up to school in your underwear. You ever have that nightmare? It's one of those things, you know, or naming the wrong best picture of the year in front of billions of people. And in case you missed it, because you might have been binge-watching former episodes of The Apprentice. Moonline actually won the Oscar for Best Picture, not La La Land, no matter what what Warren Beatty might have told you. And then, of course, there was uh, the big speech. President Donald Trump gave his first address to a joint session of Congress, not technically a State of the Union, but it was a speech with a lot of the pomp and circumstance of a State of the Union. And in general, he got very, very good reviews, not for changing his message, which he didn't, but for toning it down. It was the least Trump-like speech he's given since the election, but despite that head fake earlier in the day yesterday, it included no new positions or pivots on immigration. You didn't think he did, really? You didn't get... Um, It did, however, have some uh, emotional high points, including the introduction of the widow of a Marine recently killed in action in Yemen. In the last 24 hours, I think that that moment's become an emotional flashpoint and something of kind of a Rorschach test of how Americans feel about the new president. Uh, so we're going to actually open up the phone lines on this for the second half of the program. And this is a question I want you to think about. Was that a deeply moving, poignant tribute, as a lot of critics said it was, or was it a cynical political exploitation of human tragedy? What do you think? And have you changed your mind on that? Uh, how did you react? Our our phone number, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or you can tweet us with the uh, hashtag I- Indivisible Radio. Uh, but I want to start off with this. Th- this speech capped off another week in which Donald Trump once again escalated his war on the news media, which he has labeled the enemy of the people. Um And in particular, he singled out the New York Times, or the failing New York Times, as he likes to call it, which he actually accused uh, this week of having evil intent. I mean, this is is actually what he said. If you read the New York Times, it's the intent is so evil and so bad. He said this in an interview with Breitbart News uh, on Monday. The The stories are wrong in many cases, but it is the overall intent. Now, in an unusual... And I think unprecedented move, we're going to use that word a lot over the next uh, few weeks, Uh, the New York Times actually ran a television commercial during the Oscar ceremonies making the case for truth. 
The truth is, our nation is more divided than ever. The truth is, alternative facts are just the plain delusional. Is, the media needs to be held no The truth is, locker room talk is harmless. The truth is, we need to put the safety of the American people. The truth is, we need a full investigation of any time. Well, joining me live in studio to discuss all of this, the truth, the times, and Trump. Jim Rutenberg, New York Times media columnist who writes about the shifting landscape of the media. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope I can live up to the hype of that ad. Well, let's talk about that. First of all, you know, I'm old enough to remember Spiro Agnew and other presidents and vice presidents who criticized the media. What did what is the same that we're seeing now and what is different? Is this fundamentally different than what we're seeing now in in the Trump era from from what we've seen in the past? I mean the same is that it's always that we've always been a, a whipping post for politicians especially nationally on the Republican side, locally by all of them. Um and uh so that part's the same and and I'm old enough to remember when I wasn't allowed on Dick Cheney's plane because he hated the New York Times and we'd chase him around and try to get in the bubble. Um, so that part's the same. The difference is evil, enemy of the people, uh, a level of rhetoric that's worse, and some early games about access that may or may not matter. Now, you, you wrote of an interesting piece, uh, was it last week or this week? I've lost track of time here. Will, will the real democracy lovers please stand up? And you, you wrote, if there was ever a moment for people who believe in true information, um, believe that journalism is vital to our nation, um, this is the moment for them to stand up and say it. But, of course, there hasn't been a lot of this. You reached out to a number of leaders, including Speaker Paul Ryan, who didn't engage with you. And, and w- w- what you wrote was that what people are telling you behind the scenes is that while Trump's bombast is notable, the press is being too quick to hyperventilate, and in the end, things will be just fine. So is there, you know, how do you come down on that? You know, are, are you being just too thin-skinned, a little bit too sensitive? Is this really the end of the First Amendment? There's something, that's something I wrestle with a lot just as a media columnist. Um, you don't want to overreact, but you don't want to underreact. So, um, you know, I think there's no harm in being vigilant and being on the lookout. Um, I think jumping to conclusions that what's happening today is going to get 10 steps worse tomorrow. We shouldn't do that. But um, this is – I've never seen anything like this in 25 years almost of being a journalist where, as you've written so mm-hmm. much about, facts are getting really twisted and it seems to be a goal of this administration so far to keep it that way. Just like There's no basis in fact or at least – not when it doesn't serve their purposes. So why do you think he does it? Is is, is it just that he has thin skin, or or is there a larger is there a larger agenda on the part of Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and going after you guys on a regular basis? I think it's sort of a happy confluence. So when I I sort about the television industry, and when you would write that the ratings were down on the beauty pageant that he owned, you would hear from his people, "How dare you write that." And it's, but it's the ratings, sir. I don't, I don't know what, what do you want me to say. And so that was happening, you know, over a decade ago. So he already is predisposed to lash out if he doesn't like what you write. Then you throw in uh, his senior advisor, Steve Bannon, who has grand ideas about breaking down the quote unquote administrative state and breaking down the system. You know, it's a kind of funny, mm-hmm. I don't know, almost anarchists, corporate anarchist kind of view 
So I think it's all coming together. And, and of course, this is the ultimate red meat, right? I mean, you, you, you go to CPAC and you, you mention the New York Times, you're going to get the biggest uh, booze, you're going to get the biggest applause, right? That part's the easy part. It's when it's into the evil and the enemy of the state. Like I remember, you know, the closest thing was um, Sarah Palin's brief flirtation with the presidential run in 2011. I remember being in Iowa and she... Did a, she had a little turn in one of her speeches where she talked about it's they've they're causing the deaths of our troops, mm-hmm. and I said, "Ooh, that's a little." And I'm in the back of the room, and you know, thankfully and interestingly, even as a New York Times person, especially in states like Iowa, it's all kind of almost I don't I don't want to say in good fun, but it's people know it's part of the formula, mm-hmm. and they're actually polite to you. And and it was the first time I said, "Oh, this is, feels a little uncomfortable," you know, because of course I disagree with her, but it felt like it was going into a different place, and then it stopped. She didn't keep running it. Well, let's turn this around. To, to, to what extent, though, and not just the New York Times, but the, the mainstream elite media, to what extent did you bring this on yourself? In, because, you know, the, these, these complaints of bias are not new. They have been around for 50 years. I'm a conservative talk show host. Yeah. You know, when I first started reading William F. Buckley Jr., it was a theme of many of his books about the left-wing bias of the New York Times, the refusal to take conservative ideas seriously. Um, if, if you read his, his book, The Unmaking of the Mayor, his, his, uh, his account of his uh, mayoral run here in New York City right. in 1965, I would say a half, about half that book is a critique of the coverage of the New York Times. So when we look at this moment we're at right now, where you have the president who's waging war on the media, the media's approval rating down around 30 percent, to what extent did the media itself contribute to that? Uh, I think it's a it's a longer it's a long complicated answer. Of course, it's in the mix that the media brings some of it upon itself, not to anywhere near the degree to which he would say. Um, and I think, well, first of all, if you look farther, like the the era when Fox News came along, you could watch mainstream news, and I think it was different. I think it was notably more openly liberal. I think there was a corrective that had to take place. My newspaper, We Are in New York City, and our first public editor, Daniel Okrant, when he was asked this question, I think he did a good job of answering it. Like, of course, it's of its place. That said, I would maintain that when we report the news, we report it hard. Um, We had really strained relationships with the Obama administration on the news side. You know, I don't think a lot of people, I think the average Fox viewer wouldn't realize that, but we did. Um, I think there's sometimes there could be people who live in New York who contribute to headlines and certainly some of the cultural coverage, it's there. But, you know, I think the people who cover, and I know this as mm-hmm. one of them because I spent most of my time there covering politics, we sweat getting it right and sweat getting it fair. And it's something that keeps us up at night, I swear to you. Tell me about this ad. This, this un- when, when I say that it's unprecedented, I don't ever recall the New York Times running a television ad on, on, on a national network. This pushback on the importance of truth. What, what is the thinking behind it? What does that represent? Now, to be fair, I'm not in the strategy sessions Correct. on that. Um, and I haven't even talked as much as I would like to even to some of our own people because these times keep us all really busy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think two things are at play. One is um, – that when we're so under attack and the president of the United States is branding us as false and dishonest, it almost behooves us to step forward and really tell people what we're about, right? We, we're not going to campaign as reporters and journalists. We're not, in an op- we're not the opposition party as much as they want to call us that. But it's fine to run an ad. And also, you know, we're in a business where things are shifting and it's an opportunity to remind people when 
we're trying to kind of build our subscriber base. So they're kind of dual imperatives, a business imperative and a messaging imperative. Okay, I want you to react to this. I, I had the sense during the campaign that Donald Trump had broken the media model because the way that journalism has been set up and practiced assumes certain norms, certain standards. And nobody ever figured out, how do you handle this guy? How do you handle somebody who says something that is demonstrably untrue? How do you handle somebody who's caught in that, and, and yet the electorate does not care? Do you, do you agree with that? That, that, that? you know. And again, do you call a lie a lie? And, and your, your, your paper has been rather aggressive about that. Yeah. I, I do. First of all, I agree with that. And, and I think one of my most controversial columns tried to wrestle with this question because you hadn't – we've always brought a certain sense of balance that sometimes people talk about false balance – in the past, mm-hmm. and it was a fair critique. In this case, it became if Donald Trump was telling 10 falsehoods a day and Hillary Clinton was telling one or two, because to your point, mm-hmm. I think you wrote in my mm-hmm. paper, they all lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but if it's more, you have to capture that, and that felt uncomfortable. And I think we came around to a place where we did it. My personal view on the word lie is it should be used super mm-hmm. sparingly. False is enough. But that's really something to say so many times, this is false, this is false, this is false. But when he, he keeps emanating falsehoods, you have to keep doing it. On the outside, you know, particularly to the, to the Trump base, they, they see the media as being very, very hostile to Donald Trump and to his administration and to his agenda and, and, and on a personal basis. Is there a danger that the media, because it is faced with this rather extraordinary circumstance, is going to go too far, has been yeah. overhyping, perhaps has jumped the gun a couple of times? I think they have. I think that this is a problem, and it's a twofold problem. First of all, on the doing it right side, you have to call a falsehood a falsehood, and that's dangerous as a baseline. So then when people tonally get too wrapped up in it, too emotional, too, the big danger is you call something false that he says, and it's not false, and you've done it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I, I hate that. I, that has to stop. I think people just have to kind of take a breath and remember the imperatives, which is get it right, especially at this time when we're under attack. That's it. I'm not saying pull punches. Just yeah. make sure you have it right. Now, the, the, the flip side, I'm interested to get your reaction to, to, to this. You, you had the speech last night, which is getting very, very good reviews. In fact, rather extraordinarily good reviews, almost to the, you know, you, get, you look at this and go that the, the media is now grading him on a curve. Is there a possibility that the media will fall into kind of a Stockholm syndrome of, okay, so he's not attacked. He has not done something, you know, so over the top. We're going to be so relieved and so grateful that they're going to, again, perhaps go the other extreme and pull their punches. There's a thing to be worried about. I don't – I think what was at play here was – and again, it's almost a counter to what President Trump's been saying about the press and generals – People were relieved to be able to say something right. that wasn't just a slam. I think that it got a little bit away from the substance, or did. It got a little bit away from the substance, as you pointed out in your opener. didn't really change. Um, and there is a danger of normalizing bad behavior. Um, but it's very early. It, it is. Well, let me ask you about something. Now, last last week, um, we, we had the, the controversy over the gaggle. And for people who, do, who don't know whether you correct me if I'm right, that the gaggle is, is, is basically just a, an off-camera gathering of, of, of reporters, right? It's for us print guys, it's so the TV guys aren't peacocking around. Yeah, so reporters from the New York Times, BuzzFeed News, CNN, the Los Angeles Times, Politico, the BBC, and the Huffington Post were basically told, you're not welcome, you can't come in. Breitbart News, One American News Network, The Washington Times, some of the conservative outlets were allowed in. Some other um, um, outlets were, were, were invited in. 
Um, what was the significance of that? The significance of this on the surface to the general public, I'm sure they didn't care. Right. But the mechanics of this go as follows. The gaggle came out of the kind of Clinton scandal era when the Clinton people would want to say, okay, in the, be, before we're all on camera, we can talk about all kinds of things. Everybody is welcome, and it's open to everyone who's a, a credentialed White House press person. This was never a pooled mm-hmm. – you know, the, the White House said, well, this was a pool. Sean Spicer mm-hmm. said this was a pooled, yeah. limited – Gaggles aren't pooled, not when you're on the home turf, when you're in the White House. Perhaps, you know, they are when you're on the road. So this was saying we are going to be exclusionary. It was it was taking something away. And President Trump told me as a candidate he wouldn't do this sort of right. thing because he said, then I'd be taking something away as president. I won't do that. Is this White House re- going to – does it have a policy, do you think? That, will they retaliate against news uh, organizations and reporters that they don't like? I mean, how, how dark do you get on all of this? How, how far does it go? Because as you point out, look, you know, 99% of the you know, American public does not care who gets to go to the gaggle or not. Mm-hmm. But – if, in fact, you have the White House basically saying, we're going to retaliate against you, how far could that go? I think that um, if if their kind of baser instincts on this stuff go unchecked, I think it can go pretty far. Uh, I do think – I think retaliation could take some interesting forms. We saw it during the campaign. You know, um, Candidate Trump did not really shy away from whipping up a Twitter crowd to the point where someone like Megyn Kelly had to have security. Um that said, last night's tone, let's not go too far with it, but it was a shift. There might be a counter instinct that says that's not really how we want to do this because I don't think it serves any – it doesn't even serve his agenda. I just don't think it does. Well, I want to talk about uh, fake news and uh, you know where that came from. And, and the, the first of all, how r- remarkably um, – how the explosion of fake news during the campaign and then that remarkable pivot right after the yeah. election – where the Trump folks basically turned that concept on its head, didn't they? I mean, they've they robbed it of any meaning is whatsoever. So d- does the term fake news, should we, should we retire that, 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 that phrase, that term? I th- it, it's done. I think it's cooked. It's funny because they did that. And I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, of course they did that. Like, it's great. It's so easy, simple. Why, you know, so we walked right into it. You know? But there is fake news. There is real fake news. And... I, you've seen over the past few weeks, some of us, myself included, say that story was a hoax. Like, try mm-hmm. to avoid the term. But fake is fake, and I think it'll kind of find some middle ground. Well, th- that's the other, this is the other problem which I want to get to after, after the break. You, you are listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of rather remarkable change. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I'm talking with New York Times media columnist Jim Rutenberg. We'll hear more from him and take more of your calls right after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes from uh, WNYC in New York. I'm here with New York Times media columnist Jim Rutenberg, and we're also taking calls. Our number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can also send us a tweet using hashtag IndivisibleRadio. You know, as part of this... uh, (laughs) fraught relationship between the media and Donald Trump. There have been some of these remarkable scenes, including at that amazing press conference, including this uh, question answer. I want to find a friendly reporter. Used to say it was John. Are you a friendly reporter? Watch how friendly he is. Wait, wait. Watch how friendly he is. Go ahead. I've been good to the entire good day, Mr. President. Go ahead. There are people who are committing anti-Semitic acts or threatening to... You see, he said he was going to ask a very simple, easy question. And it's not. It's not. Not a a simple question. Not a fair question. What did you you make of that, uh, Jim Rutenberg, when you saw or heard that? Well, first I was baffled because it is a pretty simple question, right? Because the the questioner went out of his way to say, I'm not saying you are anti-Semitic. So that was baffling. That's been baffling to me all year long. Um, But the idea that he's, I'm looking for a friendly question, you know, by the way, though, you asked at the top of this, uh, what's the same? George W. Bush always wanted to, knew who to go to for a friendly question. Mm-hmm. He didn't quite articulate it. It's kind of the interesting thing about this president. We get to see his mind work in real time. Yeah, and it was also how personal it was. But I also thought it was interesting that, you know, in this, in, he goes on, he tells the guy to, uh, to, to sit down. But last night, during that address to Congress, or right out of the box, uh, the president addressed the hate crimes. He addressed anti-Semitism. So something happened between that moment and the speech last night where either, you know, somebody close to him, maybe it was Ivanka and Jared, told him, you know, you need to address this. And and many of his um, staunch Jewish supporters who will go out there and say he's the best friend to Israel we've seen, but he undercuts their message. He makes their job harder. You had a very interesting piece uh, earlier um, this month, the massacre that wasn't and a turning point for, for fake news. This was, of course, after Kellyanne Conway's now famous reference to the Bowling Green Massacre. And, of course, there was no Bowling Green Massacre. And, and you wrote, the very fact that you probably know all this means the Bowling Green Massacre may go down in the record of the Trump presidency as the first break in the fake news clouds that have cast such gloom over our fair and once relatively true republic. The same Internet that enabled false stories to run unchecked through the news feeds during the election year dispatched new white blood cells that attacked Ms. Conway's alternate facts with true facts. So do you really think that there's a a turning point in uh, this uh, culture of misinformation? Well, that week I did. (laughs) No, I think I do think it was a turning point, at least in my mind, to, to one on one basic in one basic way. And that is that the the kind of Internet ecosystem did attack this thing and it set it straight. Some of it was probably gleeful in a way that would have offended open-minded Trump voters. So that I think that's an issue. But it did say this is false and it was done. It was dead. And it showed to me that you can forward an alternative universe all you want and it will get you, it will denigrate us in the press, but it doesn't get your agenda through. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't make uh, 
the courts changed their minds about blocking the immigration ban as he wrote it in the executive order. Um, it doesn't save Michael Flynn's job as national security advisor. So there, to me, it's, the, the facts will in the end perhaps out and the ecosystem's not going to let it go too far. Yeah, that, that, of course, is the question, whether there's a reality factor out there that is going to trump any alternative facts. But, you know, you and I off the air, we're actually having a question that, that's really kind of been haunting me, which is that, you know, given these alternative reality silos that, that are so powerful in, in, in protecting the administration from criticism but also advancing their agenda, it has occurred to me that if... Uh, you had this media ecosystem during Watergate, during all of that, that that would have played out completely different. That that Would would Nixon have survived Watergate if he'd had a Drudge and a Rush and a Breitbart and a Sean Hannity every single night, you know, running interference for him? What do you think? I mean, I'm inclined to think he would have survived it. But I did get to pose this question to Bob Woodward, one of the two Watergate scribes who broke it. And Woodward's answer to me was, the same thing would have happened because we had the tapes. We had this huge preponderance of evidence that you couldn't deny it. I just don't know. I mean, you know, if Alex Jones is now uh, the, the InfoWars conspiracy radio host mm-hmm. is now being raised up as a potentially credible source by a White House, I don't know if that changes that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've written about this. So, you know, one of the notorious hoax websites, Gateway Pundit. Um, was not only not discredited, it actually got White House credentials. They're actually now at the White House. I mean, this is a change in the media ecosystem. So here, here's, the, here's the tough question, and I, I, don't, I personally don't have an answer. If, in fact, we live in this – we're in a post-truth world in which people pick and choose what facts they want to hear, and the left lives in its bubble and the right lives in its bubble, how do you – how do you get back your credibility? How do you get back to the point where there's a there's you know fact based, rational based journalism that is actually going to make a difference that it can actually penetrate these echo chambers? It's a hard question. Sigh, S I G H. I think actually it's super basic, and it's to our point earlier. Don't make dumb mistakes. Don't use it overly. Uh, provocational tone if you don't have to, which you shouldn't, and stick to like the really hard good reporting because I think that reporting is breaking through. I don't know if it's convincing the people who are inclined to not believe us. And that's the hardest thing to me of all. I think in reality, good journalism still matters. Um, I don't know how you convince people who think you've been told they've been told you're a liar and that you're evil. I, I don't know, because if you say number no, not evil, you try to maybe it's An ad campaign like ours helps, Mm -hmm. perhaps, hopefully. Um, But it's really hard. Um, Maybe it's going to – I hope it doesn't take something horrible. Maybe it takes a story that just everybody agrees on a set of facts as they happen. I just – I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of this, and uh, I, I talked about this last year when when I had kind of the, the revelation because I was pushing back on some of the misinformation that some of my listeners, you know, on, on the right were were getting, and I would say, well, look, that's not true or that's fake, and here's the here's the fact check on this from the Washington Post or the New York Times, and their their reaction was was not, well, let's look at the facts. It was like, well, the New York Times is a liberal rag or the Washington Post. So the the, the breaking through means breaking through all of these decades of branding and, of course, this huge attempt by the administration to delegitimize and discredit you completely. And I might add, you know, that what we're seeing now is that the fake news is coming from the left. And they'll say that, you know, we're, we're right-leaning tools. You know, now 
you know, I don't I think that people who watch again Fox News or Rush Limbaugh will say they're nuts, but it's breaking down on the other side too now and you know, I'm watching this really carefully and people they kind of they want to believe what they want to believe and now they have things to grab onto to reinforce it. Well, let's talk about anonymous sources. That That's another thing, because there have been some major stories, particularly about uh, the administration's ties to Russia, which uh, appear to be deeply sourced for, with leaks from perhaps the intelligence community, but they are anonymous sources. And, of course, the administration has made a big deal about this. So how do you feel about, you know, either the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or NBC News, whatever, relying on going out with major stories in which... All of the sources are unnamed. I think when it comes to national security issues and um, you know the spy the spy agencies, it's unavoidable. Um, when it comes to political stuff, like personally, I've avoid them like the plague. I've have kept them to a great minimum. Luckily, knock on wood. But um, the interesting thing there is, so President Trump makes this big declaration about anonymous sources, and then they brief reporters anonymously yesterday. Right. And here's the hitch. They bragged today to CNN that they gave them a head fake and misdirected them to have the immigration kind of policy that President Trump talked about last night slightly wrong. So it's just – it was a – Okay, the but, but that, that's not like an asterisk point, <laughs> what, what you just said. I want to think about in a, in, in a normal alternative universe. So you have all of these news anchors go in. They meet with the president of the United States who gives them a head fake. There's, there's obviously other words you would use where, that he clearly intentionally, is that what you're saying? Intentionally misled everybody to think he was going in a direction that he wasn't going to go in? Well, CNN quoted one anonymous right. <laughs> administration source bragging about that. I don't know. Um, I'm sure that source said that. Was that source trying to kind of throw something to parts of the base that were worried about any shift on immigration um, to, to liberal or whatever? But... It's disturbing, and I would say, you know, the anchors have always done that with presidents on the day of the State of the Unions, as long as I've been in the business. But if they're going to brag about misleading them anonymously and then beat them up for using anonymous sources, I would argue you can't go to that next time. You just can't. I would not. think we're going to have to leave it there. Jim Rutenberg is the media columnist for The New York Times. Jim, uh, thanks for joining Indivisible. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. This is Charlie Sykes. You know, I want to open up the phone lines. Let's, let's switch gears now. I, I want to tell you, open up the phone lines uh, to hear from you from across the country to talk about uh, Donald Trump's congressional address last night in a very specific way. Now, we could have done it, and I, I thought about doing it, just general reaction. What do you think? Did you like it or did you not like it? But I wanted to focus on what, what really increasingly feels like a Rorschach test, uh, the reaction to the um, the emotional high point of the address in which the president uh, introduced the widow of of uh, of a soldier who lost his life uh, um, who lost his life in yemen and uh, this is this is the excerpt where he's, where he's quoting defense secretary general mattis i just spoke to our great general mattis just now who reconfirmed that and i quote 
Ryan was a part of a highly successful raid that generated large amounts of vital intelligence that will lead to many more victories in the future against our enemy. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. Thank you. Okay, our number, 844-745-TALK. That is 844-745-8255. And again, this, it was interesting watching the reaction in real time because most of the pundits, including people who had been uh, highly, highly critical of uh, of Donald Trump's presidency, you know, really from, from the beginning, uh, were were quick to say that they thought that this was presidential, that this was, was moving. Um, afterwards, there was pushback, people saying, no, this was somebody who was using um, using this woman's grief as a prop. Um, let's, let's, uh, the, yeah, let's go to uh, line two. Yeah, let's, let, let's go to line two. Let's, uh, we've opened up the phone lines. Um, let's go to, this is my home state of Wisconsin, Kofiro from River Falls, Wisconsin. Good evening. How are you? Hi. Hello. Yes, Kofiro, uh, good evening. Thanks uh, for calling into Indivisible. What did you think? Did, where did you come down on this? Was it poignant? Was it moving? Was it, or was it exploitative? I, you know, just several, three things on uh, the overall speech. With the widow, I think that was very moving. Uh, a lot of Americans respect the uh, Gold Star families, and we have a lot of respect and love for the people in the armed forces. You know, it could have been used... Uh, in a more proper way, but I think what I'm afraid of is that he was using this to cover up what happened in in, in, in that incident. I think that mission was largely a failed mission. A lot of people died in that mission, and he's trying to cover that up. Just trying to make sure he doesn't get into a Benghazi moment where he has to deal yeah. with it for, for well, years. Well, this is what but the, I thought this, he this was, was more presidential too. Well, okay. Well, it was the, the term presidential, but if in fact um, he was misleading about the the raid, that's a different thing. Let me it, see some of the um, the reaction. Anderson Cooper, CNN. It was without a doubt one of the most kind of emotional moments we've seen in a political speech like this in quite some time, which was kind of my reaction. Uh, that was one of the most extraordinary moments you've ever seen in American politics. Periods at Van Jones, who was a a uh, member of the Obama administration, Washington Times called it the most riveting piece of political theater, claimed the president's critics and supporters alike admired it. Um, but writing in the Washington Post, Paul Waldman says, sorry, no. Was that moment with Owen's widow in attendance moving and sad? Absolutely. It was also one of the most cynical things Donald Trump has done as president. And Rob Reiner was on MSNBC last night. Um, talking with Chris Matthews, and he also um, was not buying it. We have this, that audio. That's in the context of a guy denying he ordered the mission. Not uh, only denying he ordered the mission, but blaming the generals for, yeah. for messing it up. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was cringeworthy. I mean, yeah. it's like the worst dramaturgy you could do now. It sells and it works. I mean, if you're a great snake oil salesman, and he is, yes. then it works. But boy, oh boy, we'll talk about using somebody as a prop. I mean, it was, it was disgraceful. Hmm. Disgraceful. Um, Bill Maher came out saying something similar. Um, another uh, a number of other critics. Let's go back to the phone. What do you think? Uh, Paul from Smyrna, Tennessee. You are on Indivisible. Good evening. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, 
to be quite honest, I was a reluctant Trump voter. But after last night, um, I see that uh, we might have a president who could be very successful. Uh, I think this is a president who... Okay, I want to focus on specifically this incident with... Right, right. And and, and this, this incident, this man, I think, recognizes the sacrifice. He recognizes that 50,000 Americans have been wounded mm-hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've spent trillions of dollars. He's a numbers guy, and I think he recognizes it. And as a father and grandfather, he recognized the sacrifice. You know, this is, I think, probably the first casualty casualties that his administration had brought to the, brought to the table. And I think there was an impact there. And he wanted the American people to honor this man who gave his last breath in defense of what we all hold dear, from Washington to Lincoln to Reagan, you know. Uh, you know, we've seen other presidents have guests at these things. So you, 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 you liked it. You were moved by it. I actually, I, I, I my react. Let me tell you what my reaction was. I was, I was. I have to admit, I was very moved by watching her, by watching Karen Owens. And, you know, that moment where she's looking up and she's sort of, you know, talking to him. And um, I just thought that that was real and poignant, which, by the way, doesn't mean necessarily that there was not some political calculation was going on. But for her, this was this was very, very real. Yes, Paul. Presidents have to leave. And I. Yes. A moment of leadership. And we also saw a very human moment. Okay. And, and, and I know that sometimes during the campaign, there were people that said, well, you know, if you knew him, if you ever got to meet him, you would see, uh, I guess you say, a softer side. And, and I think we may have seen that. You know, I, I think people need to realize he's a man with, you know, kids and grandkids. And um, uh, like all presidents, he's going to have to grow into this office. You know, John Kennedy had to bay a pig. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, it's... Um, all right, Paul, thank you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. This is what Paul Waldman writes. He said, The problem is not that Trump honored Karen Owens at a time of terrible grief or that he spoke movingly of her husband's death. All of that was altogether appropriate. Rather, the problem is that he did this after trying to evade any responsibility for what happened and after the White House cast any criticism of his handling of it as an insult to Ryan's legacy. That's the political overlay, and we're going to talk about that when we come back. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes from the studios of WNYC in New York City. You're listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's new live national call-in show. For the first 100 days of the Trump administration, we're talking about the reaction last night. I will tell you, 
that uh, I was I was really struck by the divide on social media. I, I was one of those that uh, tweeted out how emotionally powerful this was. And then I began hearing from folks, including um, including parents who had lost uh, uh, children in, in the war, who, who thought that it was manipulative. But again, people were on both sides. Now, uh, the political overlay is, of course, that the raid was controversial. You, you do have the statement, the father of that Navy SEAL who was killed in the Yemen raid actually refused to meet with uh, Donald Trump afterwards. Uh, NBC is reporting tonight that uh, officials across the government are saying that, in fact, there was no really valuable intelligence that was you know, seized in that raid. But that doesn't change the fact that you had a Navy SEAL um, who gave his life uh, for his country. And that was a very real and genuine emotional response on the part of, of his wife, Karen. And of course, um, everyone in that room uh, responded that that really that extended uh, standing ovation. So when I say Rorschach test, it is people who, who like Donald Trump generally think that that was a presidential moment. Those who are more skeptical might have a different uh, reaction. Um, our number, 844-745-8255. Um, let's go to, um, let's see here, which, uh, which, which one should we take here? Let's take, uh, let's go to Derek. Derek from Manchester, New Hampshire. Good evening. Thanks for calling into Indivisible. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Can sure. you hear me well? Yes, I can. Okay. Uh, so um, I don't want to get off message, and I hope I, I'm staying on message here. But uh, basically, my my point and my kind of takeaway from last night's speech is, uh, yes, he he changed the person who he was for that speech, or he changed his presentation of who he is. <laughs> but the reality is that that speech was written by somebody. He did not sit down and pen the speech. So my point, and I guess my question for you to maybe think about is, uh, how much can we take away from, from what he said? And, and how, do we, how much do we know about what he put into what he was saying? No, of, course, um, of course it's true that he, that he read it. But, I, but again, let's talk about this honoring of this, this widow, Karen Owens. You know, what was, was it? It was a look. It was a real moment, but was it cynically exploitative? What was your take on this? When you were watching that, how did you react? Um, I, I don't know if it was initially. Um, I'm sure she agreed to it, but yes. um, it felt more and more exploita- exploitative. The longer the camera kept panning on her and staying there and staying here and staying there, and, and, and it seemed to just drag on for for. It felt to me even like hours just watching her cry, and it was very, it became very uh, Twilight Zone y after a while because it just, it was the longest segment in the speech by, by so much. But I think that was, that, that was, that was a, that in some ways that was a result of the emotional reaction of the people and, and their respect for her who were in Congress. You can't blame all of that necessarily on, uh, on, on, on the president. Uh, let's go to, um, is it, uh, let's go to uh, Mark from uh, Des Plaines, Illinois. Do you pronounce the S? Mark. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Do you pronounce the S? Hey. This, this, this is not going to go well, is it? <laughs> Are you there, Mark? Yeah, I sure am. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I had, you know, I'd given it some thought uh, after watching uh, Trump and mm-hmm. You know, I think it's important that, you know, I, I didn't think it was exploitative because I think it's important that people see the grief that is caused by war. And I don't think it's really put out in front of everybody 
with the you know current media streams. So I think it's a good thing, and but you know, but only if Trump and the administration you know truly you know get out of the world's affairs and kind of bring the troops home. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for the call. Let's go to uh, Ethan from Indianapolis. What was what was your take? Was this a moment of genuine emotion, or did you think that he was exploiting her? Well, I think her emotion was genuine, but I think he was exploiting her. And I say that, you know, to be fair to both sides, is that I felt that Hillary Clinton also exploited the Khan family by having them up after their son was killed in war as well. Both sides to prove a point that, you know, they're right on what they said they were going to do. Trump being more, you know, pushing for the action and Hillary wanting to stand back. Okay, and, well, let, let's let's talk about that. That's that is an interesting point. You're talking about you know, the Kazir Khan family that I think had one of the high emotional highlights of the Democratic National Convention, but they obviously were not being was, exploited because they wanted to do this. They did this voluntarily. These were obviously strong people um, who had something that they wanted to say and a point they wanted to make. So, in what sense is that exploitative if, in fact, they volunteered to do that and make that point? Well, I still feel like it's an emotional play on, you know, the people that she wants to vote for her and Trump on the people that he wants to support him and any further military action. Like, if it had been honestly, if they had shown, you know, the casualties on the Yemen side... Like, if they had shown the Yemeni children who were killed, that would have put an entirely different spin on the whole situation. Well, of course, because that, there were women yes. and children killed well, then, in that raid. Th- th- this is, there was a, there's actually a really interesting analysis uh, of, of all of this, you know, that... Uh, um, I, from uh, Aaron Brett Blake, who, who writes, uh, Trump's emotional moment with the Navy SEAL's widow could define him uh, for good, but also for bad, as we find out more about this. But, uh, yeah, good point. Uh, Yvette from Philadelphia, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Thanks for calling in. Good evening. Uh, I was saying that initially when I first saw the segment or the, the whole speech, I did feel as though that portion of it, uh, was a good thing in honoring a fallen hero. Um, I have family members that served, and we, we know of people who have given their lives for our country. So I did feel as though it was honoring him and appropriate, but as the facts come out of uh, who ordered the mission, how things went wrong, how the facts have been skewed, now I'm kind of feeling like we're being bamboozled, and it was inappropriate, and basically they are taking advantage of a widow's grief. So um, I think it's unfortunate that they are playing politics with uh, somebody's, uh, you know, loved one with their grief. And and it's just unfortunate, instead of trying to bring our country together, um, it's more of the same. I think um, his speech was toned down, but restraint is not necessarily uh, indicative of being presidential. It just means that he was able to 
show some restraint during a, a speech. Yeah, thanks, so. thanks, thanks for the call. You know, she makes a very, very interesting point, though, about the, the danger of politicizing uh, the deaths of U.S. servicemen. Look, there's a great deal of danger. Um, whatever happened over over there, you know, we, we may not know for a long time. But when you get into a mode where every single thing becomes politicized, it's not necessarily good. Um, we have uh, some reaction here on Twitter. Uh, Rusty saying, it was not that he honored a dead soldier. For me, it's how he did it with the uh, the line, quote, set a record, applause line, just sad. Yeah, that was one of those moments where you had this, um, and, and I, I remember I was sitting watching this, and I'm trying to remember how it was playing through. My emotional reaction to this was just watching this woman and how powerful it was and, and how she was really drawing some some inspiration from the crowd. And then at the end, which what Trump says is, well, he must be happy because he just set a record for applause. No, this is this is a, you know this is a woman who's lost her husband, the love of her life, a Navy SEAL, winning you know a record for it was, it was there, there was a certain inappropriateness for this. Uh, there's a really interesting column uh, by my friend Christian Schneider who uh, writes uh, in USA Today. Um, he says, look, he, he thinks she was taken advantage of. She was taken advantage of by a politician starving to appear presidential during the most important speech of his life. A politician who sent her husband on a mission in Yemen beset with errors for which Trump has received wide condemnation, including from Ryan Owen's own father. Uh, on the morning of Trump's speech to Congress, this was just yesterday, the president tried to dodge responsibility for the death, blaming it on the generals, telling Fox News they lost Ryan. Both these preceding characterizations of his recognition of Karen Owens can be and are true, that she's also a brave woman, uh, and that her late husband, who was killed during that commando raid, is an American hero. By praising her husband, Trump cemented the soldier's legacy for history, but Trump clearly sought to wrap himself in the heroism the soldier displayed, a ploy to protect himself from further criticism over the unsuccessful mission. Um, I have to tell you that th- th- this this has been an interesting the story, because I, I, again, my first reaction was was very, very positive, and I think that I probably was watching and reacting the way most viewers to it were watching. But then, then of course, as you begin thinking about the context, however, I think that Christian is right that you can actually believe both things. You can actually believe that yes, maybe there was some cynicism, that there was some exploitation, but you know, Karen Owens, she was real. This was powerful. These things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, um, there there is the there is the power of redemption. There is that power of the of kind of grace. How good can come from awful things? That you can actually believe that. Okay, here you have a politician who has a political problem, and he's going to use this, you know, as a as as, as a way of solving that political problem. But still, then recognize how the moment then is redeemed by this extraordinary woman, her courage, her grief, her faith. So I, it, this is one of those issues where maybe the choice is not necessarily um, uh, binary. Um, once again, our phone number is 844—what well, did, uh, did I do with the phone numbers? Uh, 844-745-TALK. That's uh, 844 5055. Uh, let's go back to uh, let's go back to the phones. Let's go back to Andy from Sullivan County, New York. Good evening, Andy. Thanks for calling in into Indivisible. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thanks for uh, taking the call. Um, I have to say, I, I think it was uh, actually deeply cynical and uh, a real debasement of the 
potential for grace that you were just speaking of. Um, this woman suffering is real, and the sacrifice of her husband is real. But to characterize it as having been in the service of a noble mission, which would, um, as Mattis apparently put it, uh, give us a huge amount of intel on our, our enemy, uh, is is just uh, gobbledygook. We have no mission in Yemen. We're there simply to help prop up Saudi Arabia in their uh, pursuit of the Houthi rebels. We don't have a stated enemy in Yemen. And so well, if Al-Qaeda. We, if, well, Al-Qaeda, but, but we're not, we haven't declared war. We haven't officially done anything in Yemen. We don't know who this enemy is. We don't know anything about the mission that could actually justify that assessment. And so uh, all of that is lost on the viewer who, as you have very eloquently described it, is caught up in, in the emotion of the moment. And, of course, it was hugely emotional to watch anybody grieve, you know, like that on, on national television is, is, uh, is, is really deeply upsetting. But then to have that joined to a political discourse, which is just babble, and, and which is, is clearly deeply cynical, uh, I think actually the moment was hugely offensive. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. No, the, the the point he's making, and, and when I said that I was watching it, I think I was w- watching it as as the average person without all of, you know the meta context and everything um, that that he's talking about. But you know, as you go back and you go, so you know, President Trump could have just acknowledged her loss and her grief and all his Americans and just left it at that. But then he had to say, basically, then had to use the moment to justify the mission with a claim that may or may not be accurate. Now you know what. If uh, if if this mission did not actually, you know, snatch up uh, valuable intelligence, that, that doesn't make that doesn't make um, that doesn't make him any less of a hero. It doesn't make Ryan Owens any less of a hero at, at all, because these things happen that that goes on in war. But th- that was a political point to justify the mission as opposed to simply paying tribute to this uh, this this individual. Um yeah, Samson um, on Twitter says, uh, why is Ryan only a hero? Because he died in a successful raid. Would he be less of one, um, as we have heard, if it wasn't? If it wasn't, well, um, that's kind of the point I'm making, that the that uh, what determines his heroism is, is not necessarily what the result of the raid is. That may be more significant for the politicians involved. Um, let's go to, uh, let's go to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Jack from Cincinnati, uh, thanks for calling in Indivisible tonight. I think Trump dishonored him by blaming the raid on the generals and Obama on the same day. And I can also easily see Trump calling him not a hero because he died, just like he did with John McCain, saying that he's a loser for being in prison. He could have said easily Private Owens was not a hero because he didn't win. See, here's That's the, Trump's that, mentality. Yeah, but Jack, thank and God he, did, he did, but he didn't. But he didn't say that, though. So I know, but he could have thought that. He may not have written that speech. And personally, I agree with the previous caller that this blind patriotism that everyone who involved in these missions is a hero is ludicrous. We're making enemies. We killed innocent people in that raid, including, I believe, a 12-year-old girl who's American. Well, that, That's not brought up in the press. That, that, that appears to be to true. Be. But, but I don't think, look, I don't think it's blind patriotism to recognize that whatever the mission was, that this man was a hero. I mean, let's let's separate. The, you know, Ryan Owen did not choose where he was going. He did not. He did not pick out this message. He didn't say, "Let's go into y- Yemen." You know, he's one of the people who are serving his country. So I, I think you can you can question the the foreign policy 
without questioning the, 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 the heroism. But this is where it becomes complicated. And, and looking back on it again, in real time, I'm caught up with the emotion looking at that, that woman's face, looking at her body language. And it's, it's, it's that next day to step back from, from that moment and go, okay, okay, so was it wrapped in some other agenda? Um, you know, why is the president quoting General Mattis? Um, uh, you know, why does this come the same day in which Donald Trump had gone out of his way not to take responsibility for it? Um, uh, let's go to uh, let's go to uh, Mar- Mary Jane from Moorhead, Minnesota. Good evening, Mary Jane. Yeah, good evening. I, my response to seeing her stand up the first time was, "Let that suffering woman." She's only been her husband has only been dead a couple of weeks, and and she was standing there. And uh, unlike the Khan family, whose son had been dead for many years, this is a fresh wound that this woman was was experiencing. Uh, and then by the third time she had to stand, it was for the president to justify, to say how worthwhile it was for his death. And uh, that's, a dreadful, that's a dreadful thing to uh on, on the other hand, on, on the other hand, you could see how meaningful it was to her to, in, in that context, to be told that her husband's life was valuable, his sacrifice was valuable, that he was that he was remembered and respected, and that's a mission that I think that a lot of others, you know, uh, soldiers and families probably welcomed, which was to realize that 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 we we are not fighting in vain, we're not going to be forgotten. And so whatever the political context, I, I, I just felt it was real that she was thinking that, you know, to her, you know, to her husband, look, you know, y- your nation is grateful. Your nation loves you. Your nation is acknowledging what you have, uh, what you have, have done. Um, I think we have one more call. Uh, Anne from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Good evening. Yes. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I want to say, can you hear me? Yes, very quickly. Okay. I was going to say that, I mean, I had a quite visceral reaction to that when it came on. While I hope, I sincerely hope, that Karen Owens got some peace and comfort from the recognition that the whole audience gave her for her husband and his sacrifice, I, okay. I thought it was the most manipulative, disgusting, self-serving thing to prey on her raw grief and exploit right. it. And, and uh, we had to leave it there. We're out of time. Thank you for listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's new national conversation about America. It's four, four, four nights of the week, four different hosts. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll see you next Wednesday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.